The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. The subject and purpose of his account of Jesus point to establish the deity of Jesus as the Son of God. John Gospels tells us of some of the miracles of Jesus. John called them signs. Without hesitation, Jesus also claimed his deity to the fullest extent, as he repeatedly used the title of I Am for himself. John composed his gospel to provide reason of saving faith, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written that you may believe. Have you ever struggled to try to understand something only to find out later that it was, it was pretty simple what you were struggling to try to figure out? I think we've all been there and had that, that happen. This was illustrated to me in a kind of a, a fun way a couple of weeks ago up here at the office. We have volunteers and some that volunteer during the work week up here. And one of these volunteers took it upon themselves to play a little joke. And uh, the little joke was to, uh, that the night before, the morning, of, to go around and put on everybody's desk, as many as they could, a little napkin with a cutout letter E like that. Now, I had been the victim of this little joke prank about a month and a half earlier, so I knew exactly what was going on. But my administrative assistant, Nancy, did not. So I asked her, I said, hey, what's that napkin with an E on your, your, uh, your desk all about? And she goes, I don't know. Where'd it come from? What does it mean? I said, I don't know. I don't know. Well, a little bit later, I'm getting ready to head out for a meeting, and Rhonda Couts, who is another administrative assistant just down the hall, she had come over and was trying to explain to Nancy what was going on with this this brown E that was cut out sitting on the napkin. And Nancy's nugget, but I walk on out the door heading to my meeting. I'm about 50, 75 feet away, and I hear this, oh, I get it now. You see, it's a brownie. A brownie. A brown E, a brownie. Locale, no fat, no carbs, right? Yeah, you get it. You'll, you'll never be pulled this prank on you now because you go, oh yeah, I know what that is. And see, it's simple. You look at it and go, yeah, I know exactly what that is. But we struggle sometimes when we see something and we, or hear something and we don't understand. And we're gonna pick up in our study this, this morning right where we left off last week. And if you were here last week, you know that we were looking at this story, this conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus had gone to Jesus at night and he had these questions for Jesus, but Jesus had ended up kind of turning things around and, and, and really, in some ways, confusing Nicodemus. He was, he was really struggling to understand what Jesus was saying. And if you missed that sermon last week, Brother Chad did a great job in that first part of this conversation explaining what was going on. But, he, but Nicodemus was struggling to understand these things of, of being born again and born of the water and the Spirit. And we're going to continue that conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus doesn't say any more in the conversation from this point on. It's all Jesus. And Jesus is taking advantage of this wonderful teaching moment. But we're, we're going to head into a particular part of our passage, a particular verse that is the most studied, the most preached on, the most memorized, the most memorable by Christians and non-Christians. And that's John what? 316, absolutely. How many of you at some point in your life have memorized John 316? Just raise your hand, I'm curious. Yeah, in all three services, the majority of people raise their hand. Now, I haven't called on anybody yet to see if they're really telling the truth, but 
I think probably many of us have memorized John 3.16. And what we're going to do, as we always do, is we're going to look at the verses that lead up to that verse, John 3.16, and the verses after. That's the biblical context. Is biblical context important as we study the Bible? Absolutely. But what's interesting about John 3.16 is you can take that one verse and pull it out, and it's still pretty powerful all by itself. In fact, Martin Luther said, it is the gospel in miniature. But how much more profound will it be if we take the time to look at the verses leading up what Jesus was saying before he got to John 3.16 and what he says after John 3.16. So open your Bibles, open your device, and we're gonna start by getting a little context of where we were or where we are before we get there. We're gonna go back and look at verses nine and 10. And we looked at those last week, but this will just kind of refresh our memory, especially if you weren't here, you missed that. You'll kind of see what's going on. Verse nine, it says, Nicodemus said to him, referring to Jesus, how can these things be? And here is an exasperated Nicodemus crying out, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. So here Jesus is gently rebuking Nicodemus saying, Nicodemus, man, you, 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 are, you are the teacher of the nation and you're struggling to understand these things. Well, Jesus is gonna take Nicodemus away from the understanding and move toward the believing. And that's why I've given this, this study this morning the big idea that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if that sounds familiar, the big idea is verse 15. <laughs> it's verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But that word believe is so central to this study, this passage. In fact, if you can, with your Bible or your device, every time we get to the word believe, underline it or highlight it or mark it in some way. You're gonna begin to see as it keeps popping up that Jesus is trying to communicate a very important truth that eternal life comes to whoever believes in him. I've broken our study into three parts. Uh, part number one, we're gonna see Nicodemus and his struggle to believe. Part two is God's invitation to believe. And then the third part, we're gonna look at our response to believe or not to believe. So let's begin with Roman numeral one, Nicodemus' struggle to believe. And let's read the first few verses there, beginning in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Let's stop right there. We'll come back and get verse 13 in just a minute. So we see this progression because we saw in verse 10 that Nicodemus, Jesus says that Nicodemus did not understand but his problem was deeper than understanding. In fact, we see now in verse 10, he says, Jesus says, you do not receive our testimony. You do not accept our words, what we're saying. And then we get to verse 12 and he's very clear. He says, you do not believe. So why did Nicodemus struggle to believe? Well, it wasn't because he wasn't smart enough. I mean, this guy was an intellectual of his day. He was one of the most educated men in Israel. It wasn't that he had a lack of trying as well, because as a Pharisee, he would have spent his life studying the law and doing everything he can to perfectly fulfill the law. So his struggle to believe wasn't his intellectual ability or his trying. So what's missing with Nicodemus? Simply put, he did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. 
He did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. And so the question that I want us to ask is, who do you say Jesus is? Or who do others say Jesus is? Now, if we ask Nicodemus, Nicodemus would have said, well, well, I believe he's, he's, a, he's a person that, that is sent by God. And, and obviously God is with him because I've seen the things he's done. And if we were to ask that question today, if we went out on the streets today, who do you believe Jesus is? We, we get all kinds of answers. Some might say, well, I don't even believe in Jesus. Or I don't believe he existed. Others might say, well, well, he was a good man and, and we can learn from looking at his example. Others might say, well, Jesus is a good teacher. We can learn from his teachings. Others might say, well, Jesus is one of the many prophets that were sent from God. You're gonna get a, a plethora of answers when you ask the question, who is Jesus? But none of those answers are correct. The ultimate answer is Jesus is the son of God. And that's a life-changing question. And Nicodemus wasn't there yet, but Jesus is gonna help him. In fact, in verse 13, we see Nicodemus being told about Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. Look what he says in verse 13. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. He's saying, if I, can, if I can speak authoritatively about things of earth and of heaven, I must have been in both places. I must have some experience. And yes, I have heavenly experience. In fact, that is my eternal home. I have considerable heavenly experience. And so he's helping Nicodemus understand a little bit more of who he is. Now, Nicodemus, the light bulb hasn't gone off, I'm sure. Uh, in fact, Jesus is gonna continue to teach and to, and to show Nicodemus exactly who he is and what the path for eternal life truly is. So that's the first part. Nicodemus says struggle to believe. Part number two, we get to God's invitation to believe. And I've broken this part into two sections, the great illustration of the cross and the great example of the cross as we look at God's invitation to believe. And let's begin by looking at verse 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus takes this time to find some common ground to help Nicodemus. And I love Jesus is such an amazing teacher. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna meet you where you are gonna understand something. We're gonna have some common ground. And that common ground was the Old Testament. Because remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he knew the Old Testament. In fact, the passage that Jesus is referring to here, there's a good chance that Nicodemus might have even had that memorized. He knew it very well. But it goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 21. And if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Numbers 21. We're gonna take a look at this passage. And the reason we need to take a look at it is it's, it must be pretty important if Jesus was willing to, to, to bring it up in connection with what he's trying to teach Nicodemus at this point. And so it's pretty, pretty important we understand what's going on here. And the context for this, we're getting ready to read in Numbers 21, verses four through nine, is we are dealing with the children of Israel. They have come out of captivity, out of their Egyptian captivity. God has delivered them out of their captivity and they're in the wilderness. How many years did they spend in the wilderness? 40, right. Where are they in that process? They're in about year 38 at this point. So keep that in mind as we read that. Let's begin in verse four of chapter 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. It, it, 
38 years, you kind of can sympathize a little bit with them, right? They became impatient. Here's another detour. Here's another delay. We're becoming impatient. But what do they do in their impatience? Verse, verse five says, and the people spoke against God. You don't want to do that. And against Moses. And here's what they said. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We've heard them say that many times. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They're complaining about not having any food, but yet they're also complaining in the same breath about how bad the food is, right? So what is it? Either you have food or you don't. Now, again, I can, I can empathize with them because for 38 years, what have they been eating? Manna. So you can understand why they hated eating manna, but yet that was still a miraculous provision of God, right? That he had kept them alive. But they spoke against God, spoke against Moses by complaining. And then we see in verse six, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. We'll come back to that verse in a minute. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, when he gazes upon it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone and he would look at the bronze serpent, he would live. So the picture here is one of both horror, horror and glory. Thinking about the snake part, right? Let's go back to that for a minute. I think we need to kind of picture what that must have been like. Because I have a feeling most of you in this room, just the thought of a few snakes is going to make your skin crawl, right? I mean, there might be a few of you that just love snakes, but most of us, as long as they stay far away from us, we're okay with the snakes here in Florida. And we have our share of snakes here in Florida. But some of you have had a snake get on your lanai or on your front porch or even in your garage. I've got a good story about a snake in our garage with my wife. Uh, heaven forbid one actually gets in your house. But here they are, the, Israel, and all of these poisonous, venomous snakes are literally attacking them and they're doing their best to defend themselves. But they're being bitten and they're, be, and they're dying left and right. And they finally confess to God, we have sinned against you, God. Moses, would you please pray to God that he would take away these fiery snakes? And he doesn't take away the fiery snakes, but he does provide gloriously for them. And that's the, the horrific part versus the glorious part because he provides by telling Moses to shape this bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And when the people believe what I have said and look to that serpent, they will what? They'll live. They'll live. And now Jesus is using that Old Testament story when in verse 14, when he says, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up also. So back to Nicodemus. Jesus is using this example of what happened in Numbers 21 to help Nicodemus understand what Christ himself would do for him. And understanding that the, the, the children of Israel the only reason they lived is they believed God and his word and gazed upon that bronze serpent and they lived. Just like today, those that believe God and his word and look to Christ alone for their healing and their salvation. And by the way, this is John's first instant of 
in his gospel where he picks up an account in the Old Testament that will foreshadow something to come in Jesus' earthly ministry later. And this is what we call a biblical type. And a type, T-Y-P-E, a type is something or someone in the Old Testament that foreshadows or points to something or someone in the New Testament. Primarily when we're thinking of biblical types, it's foreshadowing or pointing to Christ and his earthly ministry. And this is the first instance we see of John using that here. But so what is Jesus telling Nicodemus in this, in this verse right here? What is he telling him? He's telling him that we've all been bitten by sin. We've all been bitten, just like the Israelites were bitten. We've all been bitten and we're all dying of sin. And that if we believe God and his word and look to Christ, we will be saved. And he's very clear in verse 15 where to put that belief. It's not to a bronze serpent. In fact, it's not to any image, it's to Christ and Christ alone. Look at verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's the big idea for our our study this morning. And that's Jesus giving the most succinct answer to to Nicodemus' question in verse nine. How can these things be? I'll tell you how these things can be. How 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 can you be born again? How can you be born of water and spirit? How can this happen? Verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what does that word believe really mean? Because I think we need to understand it. John uses this key verb 98 times in his gospel, almost 100 times. So it must be a pretty important word. That word believe means to believe that something is true or trustworthy, therefore we'll give it our trust. We believe it to be true, therefore we'll trust it. And it moves from having a head knowledge only to a heart knowledge. We use the example of a chair a lot, and I don't have a chair up here, but imagine a chair, and, and we've heard this example where someone says, well, do you believe that this chair will hold you up? And they'll say, yeah, I believe it. Well, how do you really believe that? You sit on it, exactly. And if I spent my life avoiding ever sitting on chairs but said, yes, I believe in chairs, I believe in chairs, but I never once sat in a chair my entire life, you'd say, no, you don't really believe in chairs, or you'd be sitting in chairs. I'd be very tired for never sitting in a chair, but I definitely would not be trusting chairs. And we all have those moments in our lives where we see a disconnect with saying, we say something, but we really don't live that out. We talk about the importance of prayer and how important prayer is, but we look at our own lives and realize, wait a minute, maybe I'm not really praying all that much that relates to the, 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 the truth that I believe that prayer is important, but I'm not spending that much time actually praying. There's a disconnect between, between our head knowledge and what we really live out our lives through our heart. And that's what, that's what truth does when we really believe something is it will impact how we live out our life. And Jesus is clear to make sure that, that Nicodemus understands that the object of the belief he's talking about when he says Whoever believes in him, he's talking about himself, Jesus Christ. And so he's introducing this truth to Nicodemus that the way to eternal life is by believing. Now, this would have just rattled Nicodemus' worldview because being a good Pharisee that he was, he had built his life around trying to fulfill perfectly the law that God had given. And he understood that the, the better he did that, the more that he would be pleasing to God. And so just like most every other world religion is built around what can I do to earn favor with God, Jesus says, no, 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 no. It has nothing to do with trying harder and doing more. It's all about believing in me. 
So Nicodemus, his whole mindset was being challenged. And maybe your mindset today is being challenged that it's not about what you do, but it's about believing in him. Now we get to the great explanation of the cross. And we get to John 3.16. And I'm gonna gonna read John 3.16. We're gonna come back and, and, and go through that very slowly in just a moment and adding in some aspects of 17 and 18 as we go through this. But this is the apex of our passage. And we'll see Jesus now explaining and expounding on this simple truth that the way to eternal life is to believe. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I want to look at four things in this verse. The first thing is we see the heart of God. And it says, God so loved the world. God's amazing love. And the love of God is not amazing because he loves this big world. No, the, God's love is amazing because he loves such a bad world. That God would love sinners like myself in open rebellion to him. That's the love of God. I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter two, verses four through five. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God loved me so much that even even in my rebellion, even in my running from him, even in my sin, my ugly sin, he loved me with a great love. That's true love. We we think of love as I love somebody because they're they're lovable. There's something to love in them. That's not how God loved. God's love comes out of his character out of his righteousness and out of his perfection. And he loves not based on what we can do, our goodness that we generate, which we can't, by the way. He loves us in spite of our sin and lack of goodness. Romans 5.8 says the same thing, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is amazing, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. That's amazing love. The second thing I want us to look at is the grace and mercy of God. It really goes along with that amazing love. It says that he gave his only son, that he gave, that he sent. That word gave refers to the bestowing of a favor or a gift to someone. And that, that, the fact that it's a gift underscores God's grace that He describes giving us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve his love. We don't deserve his grace. We don't deserve his mercy. We don't deserve his salvation. We don't deserve eternal life. It's but by the grace of God. But it also underscores his mercy that we don't get what we do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve his judgment. We deserve his wrath. And ultimately, we deserve hell, right? But God gave his son. What an amazing gift that demonstrates his grace and mercy. Look down to verse 17 and he continues to demonstrate that grace and mercy. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus coming into the world, he had every right to come in judgment and wrath and condemnation, right? But he didn't. Another example of his amazing grace and mercy. But we see the reason why he came in verse 17. He came that the world might be saved through him. Talk about grace. 
when you deserve condemnation and judgment and wrath and punishment and you get salvation, you get grace, you get love, should you not be rejoicing every moment you think about that? And should we not be thinking about that a lot of God's amazing grace and mercy in our lives? By the way, the next time he comes, it will be in judgment. The third thing we see here is the way to God. And this is the means of salvation when he says that whoever believes in him, whoever believes, and we've talked about that word believe, how often it is in this passage. And here we see it again. But what is it, how is it, how is it applied here? Well, he's given us the object of our belief, believes in him, Jesus, which is really a shorthand way of saying, I believe everything there is about Jesus. I believe that he's, that he's both fully God and fully man. I believe that he lived a sinless, perfect life. I believe that he went to the cross and died on the cross as a substitute for my sin. I believe that God raised him from the dead. I believe those things about God. That's the means of salvation. The reformers said it this way, solo fide and solo Christos. Faith alone in Christ alone. And we get that in this one little phrase, believes in him, that it's by faith alone in Christ alone that we have eternal life. Amen? And this would have rattled, again, Nicodemus's worldview because he had built his, his life around doing things to earn his salvation by living up to the law and, and, and following it as perfectly as he possibly could. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not about earning your way to God. It's not about trying harder and doing more things for God. No, it's about faith alone in Christ alone. That's the means of true salvation. And then the fourth thing we see here is the promise of God. He says, it should not perish, but have eternal life. That word perish should cause every sinner to tremble because that's the outcome for those who do not believe in Jesus that they will perish, while those in Christ that believe will have eternal life. Jesus is making it clear there's, there's two roads here. There's two roads, and one road is perish, another is eternal life. What does perish mean? Does that mean I just cease to exist? No, not at all. There's even been some theologians that, that, that every once in a while will try to bring up that when you, someone perishes, they just cease to exist, no longer have a conscious state. Nope. The Bible nowhere alludes to that at all. In fact, let me show you two verses that say quite the opposite. Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, 46, dealing with those two, those two paths. And these, those that don't believe, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment. That is what it means to perish. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians verse, or chapter 1, verse 9, they, they will suffer the punishment of eternal punishment destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So there are two eternal destinations, heaven and hell. And he's explaining to Nicodemus the road to each one of those. One is to believe in him. The other is to not believe in him. In verse 18, he makes it even more clear, crystal clear, when he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because they were born a sinner, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus uses that word believe three times in that one verse, verse 18, and he's making it pretty clear that the path for eternal life is belief, the path to perish and eternal punishment 
is unbelief. This verse reminds me, verse 18 reminds me of Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's our response? The last section of our outline. What's our response? Are we going to believe or not to believe? Verse 19 and 20, we get the chance to see what unbelief looks like. And this is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. There's the love of darkness, right? Those that do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They love the darkness and they hate the light, Jesus Christ himself. And that's what sinners do. That's what every one of us outside of Christ is like. We love the darkness. In fact, we love the darkness and our sin more than we love Jesus Christ until we come to that saving faith in Jesus Christ. But then he describes the belief, the love of the light in verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What a contrast. Loving the darkness, loving the light. Believing in Christ, not believing in Christ. Unbelief, you still love the darkness. Belief, you now hate the darkness and love the light of righteousness. Where are you today? In a room this size, there are going to be people that have not chosen that path of eternal life, of believing in him, that faith alone in Christ alone. My challenge to you today would be to seriously consider, just as I'm sure Nicodemus left that conversation, seriously considering what Jesus had just told him. Probably a little confused and maybe you're a little confused as well. Maybe you need to find somebody to say, hey, can you help me understand what this whole believing in him is all about to have eternal life? I pray that God's Holy Spirit is perhaps bringing conviction that the love of the darkness is being changed to having a desire to want to understand more about what it means to believe in Christ. But for many of you here today, you do believe in Christ. You say, yes, I have put my faith and trust. It's not just a head knowledge, but it's a heart knowledge, a heart thing. I have put my faith and trust. I've turned from my sin and put my faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what are we doing with that good news, that gospel news that we have? And I, I was challenged this week as I, as, I, as I saw things both locally here and, and even, even uh, nationally where I see people that are willing to get up and risk a great deal to espouse their own personal beliefs about something. Have you ever seen somebody that's just, man, they'll be willing to do anything to get their message out. And I thought, what in the world are we doing? We are like hiding, our, hiding the greatest message in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're like afraid to get it out. We're afraid to say anything. We're afraid to do anything. And I've been there and sometimes I can find myself going, oh, the gospel's great. Oh, the, oh I love Jesus and he's so wonderful. And we talk to our, our other brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't Jesus great? But who are we telling of this great news? We were commanded in the great commission to go and to make disciples. And who are we telling this good news to? So here's the deal. Because probably most of you, I, no matter what I say, you're, you're probably not gonna, you know, Go buy a bullhorn and go down to downtown on Friday and start, you know, preaching the gospel on the street corner. And that, that's okay. Some of you might be called to do that. That's awesome. But what are some steps you could take right now? Especially if you're scared to death by the challenge of thinking, ooh, I'm, I'm supposed to be telling others about Jesus? What are some, some steps that you could take? Well, on your way out, and I didn't put 
put these out there. These have been out there for a few weeks. But on the tables, there are two cards. They're little business-sized cards. One of them is a VBS card. What would happen if you identified a family in your neighborhood that had children and you started praying for them and you got the nerve up and you walked down and knocked on their door and said, hey, our church is having this wonderful VBS, Vacation Bible School. I'd love to invite your children to come and be a part of that. And you give them the card. And then you keep praying for them. And then you follow up and say, hey, have you had a chance to register yet? But maybe you don't, you're like, well, I live in a community where there aren't any kids. You're like, no, you're not, out of, you're not off the hook yet. There's another card that just says, you are invited. And this is a great card for just inviting somebody to come to church with you. When's the last time you invited somebody to church? When's the last time you invited somebody to your life group? These little cards, you don't have to have that to do that, but it might be a good reminder to grab some of these on your way out and put them on your table at the house to remind you to be thinking of somebody you can invite to come to church to come to life group. Now, we've not even talked about really sharing our, sharing our faith and, and having a gospel conversation yet, but these are things we can do to start that process, right? And have those conversations. And hopefully, here's my, my hope, that after today, after walking through this passage in John, that if you had the opportunity this afternoon with a neighbor, a friend, a family member that said, hey, you're, you're, a, you're a believer, aren't you? Tell me what it really means to be a Christian. You'd be able to open your Bible and turn to John chapter three and walk them clearly through what it means to have faith in Christ alone. There's also tracks out there. This is something, this is, you know, another little tool. I, I was looking at those this week and I came across this one. I thought it was kind of cool. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave. And it's literally John 3.16, walking someone through that and sharing the plan of salvation with that. Maybe you need to pick up a few tracks on your way out because you're ready to share with a gospel conversation with a family member, a friend, somebody. We've got to quit holding on to the greatest news ever and engage our culture with doing that. And it can start by inviting somebody this week or sharing Christ with somebody this week.